Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 25, Last Chapter. didn't know what had happened until I was on the deck again, face down, my legs bent at the knees, up against the wall. I didn't have any pain, which was immediately concerning, because the last time this had happened, it felt the same way at first. I flopped over to one side, lying on my back. Being able to do that was encouraging, but otherwise, yeah, this was way too familiar. Goda was only a meter away, also on his face and unmoving. Chicharron groaned heavily beyond him, but was already rising from the floor. A shrill alarm was sounding, and a recorded voice boomed on in low speak, announcing that a kinetic event had occurred. Really? Hadn't noticed. And that people were to find close quarters in which to shelter, or barring that, were to take hold and not let go until the all-clear was announced. The translated words in English floated by in my eye view, and they made me dizzy. I muttered them off. Famo? the stocky man queried with an effort. Still here? <laughs> Something hit the high dock hard. A blowout, he gasped hoarsely, the universal terror of pressure loss rising like a devil in his mind. No, I corrected, trying to match him in his effort to rise. He was already on his hands and knees. I failed and just laid there a bit longer. Everything was spinning, too. I could think and talk. If I could do those things, then I could get up. Eventually. That's an impact alarm. There's no pressure loss detected or we'd be told to get into emergency suits or retreat to pressurized cabins. The station hasn't been targeted. Not yet. Not yet? Ludvella must have fired on the cargo shuttle. Pieces would have impacted the station. Oh, God, I hurt. That came out half a moment before physical sensation registered again. Ah! That means they... Already dusted off. The shuttle's a little thing, small bang. Its crew is dead, but that's nothing to bloody Lud. They're covering their tracks. This high dock will be a big burst, so they'll want some distance. Then they'll lob missiles, see if they don't. We need to be out of here, and I mean now. He nodded, but stumbled over to Goda. He shook the man and told him in a harsh voice to get moving. For my own sake, I set my jaw and climbed up a hundred kilometers to a sitting position. It was a strain beyond anything I could remember, and I almost passed out, the station going all dark and swirling for a few seconds. 
There was no way I was going to be able to run to the airlock. He's dead, Chicharron said, hovering over his friend and compatriot, voice grinding through his own pain, shock, and sudden grief. Broken neck. He turned his crimson-rimmed eyes to me, and I truly believe that if he'd been physically capable of it just then, he would have broken mine too. Goda wouldn't want you to join him, I said, sliding my body over so I had the bulkhead to lean against when I tried to stand. We have to go. And just leave him? Can you manage a corpse right now? He would do exactly what we have to do, and you know it. On your feet. Help me to mine. The airlock is just ahead. Hate me later. Kill me later if you need to. But right now, we move. He was a soldier and had his orders. He got up with a searing moan, but aside from a limping gait for a minute afterwards, he never displayed any more discomfort. Between the wall and his bear-like paw, I was standing with a wobble after a few seconds. I continued to brace against the cream-colored bulkhead for a moment, but as the man continued to grasp my hand, I let go and he steadied me as we set off. A few meters on was a hatch to some locker rooms attached to the lock. It opened at a touch and we entered. Donning suits usually only takes a minute or two. A lifetime of training gives you some grace in certain things. Wounded as we were, there was no grace and little speed to the awkward process. Only centuries of vacuum suit evolution could have allowed us to manage it at all, and every minute that passed without shrieking death falling on our heads was a surprise. If they fired on the shuttle after clearing the eclipse of the station hull, then they could have been thousands of kilometers out by now under full throttle. That was plenty far enough for safety's sake from flying debris. What were they waiting for? The fact that they were waiting made me doubt my assumptions. If they hadn't destroyed the high dock yet, then maybe they weren't going to. If they weren't going to, then maybe they weren't even out there? I hadn't laid eyes on Ludvella, not once. How could I possibly be sure of anything? How to even begin sifting through the rioting gang of my assumptions? Chicharron set the exterior airlock to auto-cycle once we were inside and the door was shut. It ran through the usual warnings in a nasal robot voice, all in low speak. We did not have clearance from pedestrian control on the station, which was in charge of spacewalks. We hadn't punched in our ident codes. We hadn't, in fact, done anything in accordance to proper protocol. The lock would still work as it should, since there was an active collision alarm still sounding. That is to say, a true emergency. And a group of first responders, in most circumstances, would need to get outside as fast as possible. An emergency cycle was basically just a fast venting. In seconds, the lock was at vac, and we got a go-ahead light to leave the station. The big man at my side said nothing because there was nothing to say. 
He opened it and climbed down a set of wide, grated stairs to a landing right outside. I followed. The station was under constant motion, spinning to offer up a modicum of centripetal force. We were on the outside of the cylinder, and the slotted metal of the landing was all that held us to the place. Looking down between my feet and through the slats of the landing, stars rolled by, indifferent to our fear. Is the courier in system? It will be by now, I replied, calling up the current time in my eye view with a muttered phrase. In most well-developed star systems, a great deal of information is shared between all vessels and settlements through long-range net access. Data like this, between remote fetch and delivery points, can be subject to serious delays, which is why they set up networked fleets of cache and relay satellites in various orbits around a settled star system. It was also why official traffic buoys acted as network relays for the comings and goings of space vessels, you might be too far away to get direct data from passing vessels in a timely fashion, but you were rarely very far from a networked satellite that could provide you with at least fairly current cached information at a fraction of the power required. Low power requirements meant cheaper satellites, which usually meant more satellites, which in turn usually meant better coverage. I queried for updated traffic arrivals, and saw an entry for Grantoa, Courier, Silver Flare Deliveries, ILLC, non-typical. That is, registered as having arrived in a small, uncommon jump point, likely far off access to the primary. It was a routine practice that would draw no special attention. Arrival time was approximately four hours before. Assuming nothing had caused the plan to deviate, Grantoa would, officially, be waiting for other ships to arrive so it could transfer high-priority data packets for further deliveries along various other routes. In reality, of course, it was waiting for our signal. I didn't know where the nearest relay was, but I linked the suit's radio comm with the comparatively weak signal from my retinals. And Exosuit's communication capabilities were robust enough to be easily picked up by data satellites and sent on. Then I switched channels to the buoy network in-system because one of the things it also monitored was the graviton discharges of ships arriving and departing through jump space. Gravitons were short-lived, existing in the real universe for just microseconds, but they were also superluminal, stretching across the star system at many times the speed of light. That kind of information could therefore be relayed nearly in real time. It would take minutes for my message to reach the courier, but only seconds for a buoy in a nearby orbital location to us to register Grantoa's sudden and unannounced departure once it heard our signal. I queried the traffic network and set up a running list of vessels exiting the star system. We'd know if and when it left, and then approximately how long we had until the fireworks. All of this took just seconds, 
the process of contacting remote networks having been set up in advance and practiced for at least a week prior to the advent of the operation in both subjective and real times. It had been part of the mission, and we'd been thorough. I didn't see any scoots inside, I commented then, turning about on the metal surface of the airlock platform to look around. Chicharron did the same motion for a bit, then found a narrow door I'd missed, like a locker. Do we even need them? There's nowhere else to go. These suits don't have thruster points, I reminded him. If we're tumbling out of control, you can forget about a rescue. You still think that's possible? He grunted in reply, rattling and yanking on the door, which seemed to be jammed, possibly from the impact to the station before. You think we'll survive? I know we will. I've done this before. Of course you have. He said nothing more, finally kicking the thin metal door several times until it opened. This happened in utter silence, though I was only a meter away. Inside were several items looking like sets of pipes or rods bundled together. That's more like it, I remarked uselessly. While he fought to get a couple of the simple folded vehicles out of the narrow storage box, they seemed to be jammed too. I looked out into space, scanning for Latvella, but it was nowhere to be seen. Realistically, I wouldn't have been able to spot it at the distance it must have been by this point, but that didn't keep my eyes from roaming the stars. Why hadn't they fired yet? This is awkward for me. I need a hand. Chicharron was pulling out a long contraption made solely of tubes, fabric straps, and lines of thin metal. It seemed to be similar to a folded scoot, but was much bigger and unlike anything I knew. What is this? I asked as I helped him wrangle it. Up close, it was no more identifiable. A bus, the other man replied with a surprised tone, as if confused by my confusion. A group of workers strap in, and the driver brings them to where they need to go, in and around the station. This is human-piloted? I pressed, though I spotted a bar that had a small control panel on it as he fought to unfold the thing. It was a mighty awkward process, standing as we were on what amounted to a fire escape landing opening onto all eternity. Of course. Machines steal jobs from men. We had things like this in the Alliance, but not so small and easily stored, and definitely not controlled by a person. How can you even say such a thing while you're in space? I asked. Automation is everywhere around us. As the thing took shape, I counted strap-in harnesses for eight people. All thruster points on this vehicle, which was legally a boat, I suppose, were integrated into the frame. In fact, everything was integrated, including the straps and reaction mass chambers. The simplicity of design made it seem like the bare skeleton of some alien beast. Chicharron harnessed himself in front, taking the job of pilot without asking, and pointed for me to strap into the last spot for load balance. The familiar Kano is right, of course, 
he went on while we buckled in. The thing was light, but large and bulky. He basically just lifted it over our helmeted heads and then lowered it down until we could both fit the straps around our torsos. This unworthy one is ignorant and stupid, misinterpreting the basic principles of the Empire all these years. He begs the great son of Famille Vernes for forgiveness, and will endeavor to remain silent upon such complex topics in the future. This was the largest collection of words I'd heard the man spout since I'd known him. His tone over radio was demure, deferential, and dripping with respect. I knew then the depths of his contempt for me, and I was shocked into silence. Once secured to the frame, we undid a physical latch upon the high railing of the landing and stepped off. Chicharron manipulating the controls with an expertise that implied long practice with a thing I'd just learned existed. He had probably piloted a scoot bus or whatever it was called for a living at one point in his life, or maybe as part of some extended undercover operation. In fact, despite a look-see of his professional background during the planning phase of the mission, I knew nothing about him. Nothing that covered stupid little jobs like flying a skeleton around, and certainly nothing that spoke to the man's core, to his values. But I was learning about them now. We gained a bit of scope and perspective in a few minutes while pulling away from the rotating barrel of the high dock, so I loosened the harness a bit and turned to look where the cargo shuttle had been parked. There was a haze of metallic and plastic pieces still hovering around the small station's midsection. A piece of the boat's aft cargo hold was still attached by an anchoring arm. This part of the vessel had been severed from the rest by the attack. Steam-like gases added to the mess with various expanding liquids spraying out and boiling in the vac from a half-dozen raggedly torn lines, trailing off what remained of the shuttle's hulk like entrails. These were for Atmo and plumbing recharges, as well as lubricants, hydraulic lines, and liquid fuel. It was impossible to know for sure what sort of weapon had been used against the boat, at least by eye. But considering how relatively sedate the impact with the station had been, all things considered, it hadn't even caused an air leak, the cargo boat seemed to have burst from within rather than explode along one side. That flash of orange behind us just before being launched through the air, that was the light from the shuttle tearing in half, stabbing through those shield glass windows, high up in the main thoroughfare behind us. It must have been bright to have shone like that from the other side of the high dock. An energy attack strong enough to have torn the shuttle in half and thrown part of it into us would have simply kept going and cut into the station. That hadn't happened. An armor-piercing missile, though, entering athwart the boat and detonating inside would have done the job. A large piece of the shuttle had gone toward the high dock, impacted, and then rolled off into the dark. The rest just remained in place, meat on a hook. 
The whole station was now surrounded by an ugly swell of shattered superstructure and scrap. Pull us away from here, set us spinning, and then lay off thrusters, I ordered. They may be monitoring sensors for survivors. Their gunnery will flag any controlled flight detected in all this trash and lock on automatically. The man acknowledged and obeyed. We tumbled free, the stars slowly circling around the skeletal bus, our little life raft. The high dock seemed to fall away the whole time. I set my retinals to measure the distance we were making, but such things are deceiving in open space, and it could only bring back generalities. Five kilometers, more or less, but maybe more. Maybe ten. Twenty? Yeah, possibly twenty. The clarity of the station, seen through vacuum, and the starkness of light from the system primary, dim as it was this far out, made the thing shrink ever so slowly. It still seemed like I could touch it with my gloved hand, and I even tried once, the surrealness of the moment infecting my sensibilities. And still they hadn't attacked the high dock. They dusted off and killed the boat, but left the small station alive. A station with enemy forces aboard that knew who they were and what their oh-so-secret and oh-so-bloody mission was. Boat destroyed, but High Dock alive. Oh, I expostulated as it came to me. But then the polarizing lens of my helmet visor went opaque, and I was dazzled by lightning stabs and pain in both eyes. It wasn't the sun-bright flash outside that caused discomfort. No, the helmet had turned dark in a millionth of a second, when the tactical fusion device left behind by the crew of Ludvella went off, transforming Dejato Station into a new, if short-lived, star. The feeling of being stabbed in the eyes was from the accompanying EMP, knocking my retinals offline. The pain was only a spike, gone in an instant, but I couldn't reset my ocular implants using the usual eye movement sequence of up, over left, over right, down. I tried it several times, with no luck. Meanwhile, I called for chicharron, but comms seemed to be out as well. For that matter, the constant hiss of air in my helmet had stopped. Respiration systems were no longer functioning on the suit, meaning emergency passives had taken over. Those had hard limits regarding the onboard supply of oxygen available and the amount of carbon dioxide that could be scrubbed out by the filter embedded in a vented collar ring below the helmet. Every nation was different about that, with varying laws and customs dictating the amount of standby life a suit needed to carry. I had no idea about this one, and without my retinals or the suit's diagnostics, there was no way to check. Gradually, over the course of a minute or so, the helmet visor depolarized, becoming first vaguely translucent, then smoky dark, and finally clearing up. The star still spun around us slowly, Nothing but mind-bending time could ever affect them. 
During this rotation, a cloud of debris with glowing plasma tendrils, all expanding, all fading, tumbled by again and again. I couldn't imagine how we hadn't been pierced by a million fragments ejected at relativistic speeds. But neither did I know how far away we really were. That illusion of closeness, of near distance, was absolute even now. The cloud kept expanding, but its internal light faded until it was just a patch of darkness, occluding the stars behind. All gone. The mission, Goda, my hope for gathering direct evidence. Nothing but dust. On the other end of the bus, Chicharron was trying to turn in his harness to get a look at me. I slapped a bar of the frame before me in the universal all-clear code used throughout settled space. One, three, one. I repeated it several times until he noticed the vibration and stopped his struggles. Still facing forward, he raised his hand, looping his thumb and forefinger in the ancient OK gesture. All-clear meant things were good. Things were safe. I was fine. Or at least fine for now. Fine enough. His okay in this circumstances might have meant the same, or was simply an acknowledgement of my being alive. Yes, Dejato was gone. It was possible we'd been close enough for a deadly dose of ionizing radiation, gamma, x-rays, Alpha and beta particles, the list was long. The suits would have afforded a modicum of protection, maybe more than a modicum, but like with the emergency air, it was impossible to know just yet. If and when I started choking on my own blood, I'd have a better idea. There would also be a dance going on now between the suit's insulation and the outside temperature. Space couldn't convect or conduct, but it did let things radiate. I was warm. Space was cold. No suit on the market had an integrated system for perfect passive heat regulation, though some were definitely better than others. The good systems were expensive, but no common worker suit ever was. It would take time for my body heat to be lethally leached away, but that time would come and I didn't know when. Something floated obliquely past my frame of reference, shining once in the weak sunlight. It was square and reflected light like metal. Before me, Chicharron was tapping at his right forearm and then his left. Then it occurred to me that I could reset the frame interrupts in my suit to cause a short and reboot of the system. Those were along the forearms, on both sleeves, under detachable patches. I pulled them off, sending the metallic fabric squares zipping out into the black, as my companion had. They fell away, end over end, like pieces of confetti at a celebration. A glint from the far-off sunlight, then nothing, then a glint, over and over. The reset took only a moment. Status lights from the arm controls winked on. The subtle hiss of my helmet began again, 
and local frequency comms came to life with a stab of static and Chicharron's voice shouting in my ear. I'm in far mode. Do you read? Yes, I do now. Thanks for the reminder about the interrupts. Ahead of me, he struggled to shrug in the suit, strapped tightly to the frame as he was, but he sounded relieved when he spoke. Such a thing is easy to forget under the circumstances. Have you tried the squad? I asked. Do you think they could be here yet? No idea, I replied. My retinals are offline. I don't suppose you know one of the frequencies off the top of your head? We can try it through the suits. I was hoping that you might know. We were silent for a time. Then he asked, How long would it take bloody Lud to reach the jump point? That was a good question, but without access to the maps and vector calculators in my retinals, the best I could do was a guess. Uh, normally four to six hours, I'd say. Considerably less if they pulled heavy Gs. That would draw attention their way, though. Every sensor and telescopic eye in the system will be looking at where the station was. That's not where they are right now, but a ship making a mad getaway would draw attention. The local warboats can take them out from almost anywhere in Juacad. There must be lots of confusion. If Ludvella rolls along at a normal pace and stays quiet, it might make the jump point without anyone being the wiser. And if they registered a false itinerary, they'll vanish entirely once they jump. We'd have to start over again. The two of us were silent then for a minute. This had been costly, tragic, and enlightening, but not successful. Success would have been the only thing that could have justified it, if only to some, and only to some degree. We'll have to call Saurasup Station over emergency channels for help, Chicharron stated. They must already be on their way, I replied. Scan through the freaks until you find a strong signal full of crazy chatter. That'll be them. He messed with his comms for a while before finding something good, and he gave me the frequency. What came on was mostly jumbled voices, since the suit lacked decent filtering. There were no auto-translations for idiot alliancers, but what I could make out implied that rescue and inspection boats were on their way. Our suits had emergency tracking built in, so they probably already had us on sensors. Indeed, Chicharron started conversing directly with someone right about then and reported to me that a pickup was in the works. Ask about Ludvella. Tell them they destroyed the station. He did so. The ship is outbound, burning reaction mass, he reported. They keep asking who we are. How do you want me to answer? Don't. It'll take too long to explain, and bloody Lud might be listening. He spoke with the voices for a while, then reported that a rescue boat was underway from Soursop. They had our beacons picked out and locked in from the background radiation and debris. Still, it was likely to be six or more hours before they could match our velocity and trajectory. We could have shortened that time a bit and worked toward a rendezvous if the bus were functional, but its electronics had been knocked out by the pulse. Guess we're waiting, I concluded. 
I just wish we could hear what was happening with Ledvella. But there was no way to do that, and he said so. After a bit, Chicharron spoke with someone new on the line for a long time. It went on and on, back and forth. At one point, he called to me over our private channel. They are very insistent about our identities, Famo. Local security has ordered Bloody Lud to heave to, but it's ignoring them. So far, they are holding off from direct interdiction because it might be provoking. This is a neutral system, after all. Though it is acting suspiciously on the heels of a terrible accident, Happy Choice is registered as a foreign nobleman's property who is not embroiled in war. They don't know who we are, so they are unwilling to take me at my word. Did they say how long until it can star jump? No, but their urgency tells me it will be soon. I weighed a few things in my head then. If time was short, then so were our options. Have them put an English speaker on the line, or have an AI translator listen in. Then I'll talk to them and declare who I am and why we're here. Are you sure? Yes, do it. As a nobleman, if I'm so very different, as you say, I may as well use it. It took a few minutes, but then a woman came on with a thick accent. Her words were tough to decipher over the scratchy, cottony channel, but she could apparently hear me well enough. I supplied my name, noble rank, and family connection. She was clearly taking instructions from someone right by her side. My words didn't cut any ice right away. I hadn't expected them to. These people had no reason to believe in some voice from the void, spinning out a weird story in the midst of calamity. Maybe, though, it could gain us a dram or two of trust. Or maybe the decision had already been made. It turned out later that several of the runner-class battle boats had lined up on Ludvella from almost the moment the shuttle had exploded, tracking a suspicious ship fleeing the scene. After continually ignoring orbital control and the security forces, the order came to wing them, as it were, and prevent an escape. The precision of military-class gunnery on objects along a collinear vector is exceptional, even at great ranges. Just before Bloody Lud reached the minimum distance in the system gravity well for what I would consider a viable, if unsafe, star jump, one quick pulse from the particle cannon of a line-runner battleboat named Maxwell's Revenge hit it dead square in engineering, holding the ship from port to starboard, tearing through the fusion reactor core, shutting it down cold. The escaping ship was dead in vac, tumbling at great speed, entirely without control. No juice to right itself, no juice to jump away. As I heard it told, the locals had intended to overtake the vessel, board it, and find out just what the frothing heck was going on. That could have taken a week or more, since the big boats were all deep in system, and Ludvella was ballistically and very speedily rolling across the far end of the star system. The locals may well have been successful with all that, 
If our squadron hadn't arrived only a few minutes after Maxwell's revenge, ask the raider to stay and visit for a while. The Silver Flare had picked up our signal and jumped back to relay the go-sig. It took that tiny messenger days in star jump to return to our squad's assembly point, and literally no time at all in real space. Upon arrival there, the message was beamed out to the waiting ships, which paused only long enough to confirm mission readiness among their number. Then it was even more days in star jump before the squad arrived, which were but a blink for the rest of us. Upon exit from the jump and detection of the crippled assassin, Boudinac's stout blonde captain fingered Lavella to the local authorities. He stated it was a known pirate they'd been hunting, now positively identified. He declared his right to the kill, which was legal in nearly all of settled space. Such a thing could end up before the College of Families if the question of actual legality ever came up, but that fine gentleman chose not to wait for any local views, observations, or opinions on the topic. To give them their due, Ludvella's crew died as stealthily as they'd hunted and lived. Our people harassed them with some small DEW fire while putting 12 missiles on track. Bloody Lud never made a peep of protest. Running solely on emergency power, it managed to shoot down or otherwise disable five of the deadly dozen racing toward it. Impressive, considering they were so banged up and tumbling. The remaining seven missiles got through their defenses and delivered some serious overkill. All this happened entirely out of my sight, over a million kilometers from where we drifted, strapped to our dead bus, now more like a skeleton than ever. It happened out of my hearing, too, the comm frequencies being unknown and encrypted to boot. I didn't know anything at all until the rescue boat picked us up and we were able to call our people. I wasn't the one who had pulled the trigger. I hadn't been able to watch that butcher's block of polinium and dark duty erupt into a blister of energy, broken pieces and death, yet it was gone all the same. Justice for Dorcas of the Heather. Justice, not revenge. That was all, nothing more. But there should have been more. More satisfaction, more flavor. How curious. Instead it felt strange, inadequate, even ill-fitting, like weak tea to a ravenous palate. I started to say as much to Chicharron at one point while we sat in a modest med facility upon Soursop, waiting for a shuttle from the squadron to arrive. The two of us were undergoing mild treatment for rad exposure, nothing very serious. After all, we'd been over 70 kilometers distant from Dejato Station when the bomb went off. Seventy! Imagine that! I rattled on like this for a bit while he gazed at the deck, tired and disinterested, 
Eventually, he just waved me off. Despite his excellent English and temporary loquaciousness out in space, it seemed that this man and I, well, we didn't speak the same language at all. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.